Cosmic Salon, and I have a good friend to the show, Jason Quit here today with a very exciting reveal for the world. Jason is the writer of the wonderful book, Egyptian Postures of Power, Mysticism, Movements, Meditations, and I love this book. You can find Jason at thecrystalsun.com, and all this will be plugged at the end and in the show notes. So with no further wait time. We're going to enter into this conversation and welcome Mr. Jason Quit back. Hi, Jason. Hi, Nish. Great to be back. It's wonderful to have you here. I, you know, you're one of my favorites, and this whole audience that is shared all over uh, loves you. You are well loved, and you are loved because you put forward really great work, and your observations and abilities are just keen. So, tell us about this new book. How did it get started? What was the idea of it? Let's go from the beginning. Well. I was actually um, writing the second part to the Egyptian Postures of Power series, and um, I've been doing this since the summertime. So it's been quite a few months, almost half a year, of just uh, writing and, and meditating on different various uh, concepts. And in fact, I did a, uh, a show with you a couple months back. I'm trying to remember exactly when it was. It was definitely a couple months back. But we were discussing, actually, um, the process of writing <laughs> the new Egyptian postures book. And it was during um, one of the chapters that I was working on in the Egyptian postures book. Uh, it was a chapter called uh, the, uh, the Brazen Serpent. <laughs> and um, I, was, I was really going down the rabbit hole in that uh, chapter and decoding certain ancient symbols uh, connected to the tombs of uh, found in ancient Egypt, the Valley of the Kings and the Valley of the Queens. And as I was decoding certain symbols um, on the wall, I started to notice um, a pattern that I never have seen before, um, never heard before being spoken about. And it um, it opened my eyes to a new concept. It's almost like a there was a hidden language behind the symbols um, that tells a completely different story, but a complementary story. And I started to go down that rabbit hole, and I realized that this was extremely important, and I may have stumbled upon one of the secrets 
that has been uh, hidden for thousands of years, uh, unbeknownst to other researchers, this was completely uh, out of left field. So I couldn't find any information on this anywhere. Uh, it was so out there that I actually had to stop writing the Egyptian Postures book and just expand on what I found. And this is the genesis of the new book, which uh, just was released. And the name of this book is called Astral Genesis. And uh, it talks about the astrological keys to the gods. Um, the concept of the, the chapter I was writing, uh, the Brazen Serpent chapter, was about the, um, the correspondences between um, the astrological myths so about uh, the stars, the constellations, and the path of the sun through the seasons um, as it makes its yearly journey, and how that those ancient stories, those ancient myths, are based astrologically on the journey of the sun through the different houses of the zodiac. And I, as I was going through this, I was really studying the um, the pyramid texts, the pyramid texts of Unas. Which, um, which it's about 5,000 years old, uh, 2400 BC or 2600 BC. And it was as I was going down through this, we were kind of showing the relationship between the ancient myths of dying and the process of dying um, and how it related to um, the path of the night sky and going through the different constellations of the night to be reborn as the new sun on the eastern horizon, the uh, you know uh, Horus is risen. The, you know Horus, the savior, comes back to the world, and um, so that was kind of the concept of the brazen serpent, and it wrapped in a lot of very ancient mystical texts and very mystical ideas. And that's when I stumbled onto um, something unique, I believe, which has to do with a language of the symbols of Egypt. But it extended further than that. So as I started to go down this rabbit hole, I started to see these astrological myths being hidden within the symbols of other cultures, other lost ancient civilizations. And this chain of knowledge, this custody of knowledge that I found it goes all the way back. The furthest I found it goes all the way back to Gobekli Tepe. So it's about 12,000 years old. So the same symbols, the same artwork, the same concept that is found at Gobekli Tepe, Tehran uh, Tepe, about uh, right at the uh, end of the last ice age, 12,000 years ago, carried forward into Samaria, into Babylon, into Egypt. And I also found this signature, these codes, these astrological myths, unbroken, carried to North America, Central America, and South America. So we know, or we assume, that there had to have been this type of prehistory that we're not aware of, this concept of Atlantis, or uh, you know, a highly advanced ancient civilization that we're not aware about. And it seems that this is this code or this uh, message 
is spread out over the entire world identically. So it had to have come from some uh, unknown or known civilization that predates Gobekli Tepe. So we're going back into the last ice age. But that information remained unbroken and passed down through civilizations that I, I would call uh, cedars of civilization. So the main civilizations of Samaria, of Egypt, of uh, the um, the Inca, the Maya, um, all these amazing cultures, the Adena mound builders in America, all these amazing uh, civilizations that existed on this planet, they all carried the same knowledge. So the question really is how did all these civilizations get this knowledge? Because it's not something that just comes randomly. Uh, it's not an easy thing to understand. So someone had to literally teach these concepts and how to apply these rules um, to many different civilizations. And, you know, if you look at our civilization today, we're only... I would say modern times, only a couple hundred years old. How does a symbol or a story or a concept from Gobekli Tepe show up 7,000 years later without change in Babylon or Egypt? It's like, how does that happen unless there's these wisdom keepers, there's these solar priests or someone that holds the knowledge that keeps it so protected that it it's maintained perfectly and it's passed down through the generations um, without being um, infected with other cultural ideas. So that's that's the uh, the big breakthrough that um, we go through on the path of uh, the book Astral Genesis. This is remarkable. So let's ruminate on this for a minute. I. I'm very, very curious always about the teachers and the maintainers of the stories. And there are a lot of names people can ascribe to them. Throw in your your template, right? But let's do a little bit of analysis here. So first of all, you get this if we could say almost divine inspiration to dig into something. And that that's the stuff that is the most special for me in this realm that we're in is when there's something that you know it, it's coming to you, whatever it is, however it comes to you, wherever it sparks, but where you know you need to, to follow this, you need to hear when you hear the call. And so you go looking and you find there's nothing really contemporarily out there so you have to do the work and dig and in the digging you find this continuity this thread that goes through cultures and places and time and I am curious as to what are your ideas of these record keepers these holders and in particular the ones are in the way they disseminate this information to people at certain times. And the thing that is extra interesting here is it doesn't matter whom it is, 
right? It, it just doesn't matter. It's just that it's there and that somebody in the right vibrational state can access it now. It's a door that was opened and that's what you did. You accessed it and you walked through. I'm curious about these kind of timekeeper entities, beings. What are your thoughts there? It's very interesting because it's not, it, it, it's hidden information. So we can look at a picture and we can get a myth or a story from this picture or symbology. And then that symbology is passed on through generations. So we have a picture and then we have a story associated with that picture. The, the most interesting thing is that the picture itself, let's say the artwork, the symbol, the statue, or even the architecture of the building, what they did is they encoded their knowledge in the structure of the symbols themselves. So when you're looking at it, you're saying, oh, these are artists that drew a picture. You know, it says like, uh, hey, Jay, draw a picture of a boat, you know? <laughs> It's not. It's not like that. It's. I. I. I can't just draw a picture of a, a boat. These were like specialized priests that, when they drew the boat, it had to be done exactly in the specific order or arrangement, scale and size, to encode a story or encode a, um, a volume of information in that symbol itself. So this is highly complex, and this is why we can't. Um, this is why I think we've overlooked it, or don't understand it, is because, you know, if you see a picture of a duck, you're thinking, okay, it's just a duck, and what does this duck mean? But in the eyes of these, um, I'll call them solar priests, what they did is they um, used the body and the geometry of the duck to encode specific angles, specific qubits, uh, specific directions that only somebody that was trained in that knowledge would look at that duck and say, this is like an encyclopedia of, of knowledge hidden within the image of the duck. So whoever was creating this, whoever was passing it down, it would have been highly secretive. It would have been something that was maybe even only passed down through uh, family uh, kept very secret, and it had to have been taught because um, if you don't understand the basics behind the geometry or the angles of these symbols, it's not something you can just pick up out of the blue. I found a thread. That's all I can say. And the thread has to do with the movement of the earth and the sun. And then from there, you can launch out to the stars. But the most important part of this whole system is the movement of the Earth through the seasons. So the Earth has a predictable tilt. That creates our seasons, it creates our year, and it divides our year into uh, main sections. So we have like um, the equinoxes, which is when the sun is perfectly uh, aligned to the equator. And then um, we shift 23.5, 23.4 degrees to the north to give our uh, summer. And we shift 23.5 degrees to the south to give us our winter and the solstices. So we have 
uh, markers in the sky using the sun of the different times of the year. So that information, the movement and tilt of the earth, that's encoded in the symbols. So that's the first thing you have to look for is, is the tilt of the earth, the degrees of the sun used in creating the artwork? All right, so that's, that's like the first thread of this information. And who would who would figure this out, right? So that's the first thing. And the second thing is once you figure that out, you have to figure out the location of where this artifact was found. Because depending on your latitude on planet Earth, the sun is in a different position in the sky. That's how we get our latitudes, right at the equator at zero degrees. If you go up to Egypt, which is about 30 degrees, where the Great Pyramid is, um, the North Star rises off the horizon 30 degrees in the sky. That's how you get 30 degrees of latitude. So then now you have to look how is, let's say we're looking at artwork from Egypt. Now we have two, now we have two things. We, if it's a solar motif of artwork, then they would place the, um, the degrees of the tilts of the earth at different times during the year. And then they would place the degrees of where the North Star is. That gives you your latitude, which would be 30 degrees. So it's like they're putting this type of solar language and solar and earth language in the artwork itself and then building the artwork around this code. It, it took a long time to figure this out. But once I figured this out, everything just clicked in place. And then it's like, you can hand me Egyptian symbols or Egyptian artwork, and I could look at it, put it on my computer screen, uh, type in different coordinates, and see if those symbols um, are part of the solar motifs or, or holds the secret language in these pictures. And with Egypt, with Egypt and Samaria and Babylon, it's almost all the pictures that you see in the tombs, they follow a very specific guidance on how they're created. And I don't think anybody has touched on this yet. So this is really um, exciting. It's like a new a new discovery that's been around for 12,000 plus years. But uh, when you're speaking about... Um, these teachers or the people that are passing down this information, they must have been very serious people. Um, they must have known something about our past that has probably been lost. I don't know if many people know the answer to, to what they were holding, but with the information that they did hold was so important that they had to create hidden languages and create myths and stories around it so that it could be passed down for the future for some reason. But it was, it's, it's so important. It's like an unbroken chain that's been around for at least 12,000 years. Yes. And see, this is something I would like to expand upon. So let's just use you as the example, since this is the book you're bringing forward, even though it's bigger than you, way bigger and older and all this. 
But let's say Jason of 10 years ago or 20 years ago, you wouldn't have been able to look at that same painting and see that code conceivably. It's taken, don't you think it's taken the process to get you to where you are now through your studies, through your experiential uh, terrain, uh, you know, moving through the terrain of this realm to get to the point where you could look at the painting and see that there was information you did not see before that looked seemingly mundane. Yeah, I would. I don't even know how I caught it this time. (laughs) I'll say I was lucky. You know, it's interesting you look at a picture, uh, let's say specifically from uh, Egyptian tombs, and you're seeing, let's say, Ra or Horus or somebody, and they're holding symbols in their hands. They're holding, let's say, the Ankh or the Waz scepter, and and sometimes they're holding two. And when you're looking at a, a being that's holding two Waz scepters, for example, or two Ankhs, when you look closely the two unks are different in size. They're not the same unk. They're not, if you look at the two Waz scepters, they're not the same Waz scepters. They're designed differently. And then it's like, well, why is, why is there this conflict? Why are there different um, symbols in the same picture that are, that are uh, displayed differently? And my ignorance was, you know, if you're, if I'm looking at a picture and trying to decode it and I see something that's, that's off the first thing I think of, oh, it's this just the artist, you know, they're they're winging it and they made a little <laughs> mistake. No, I'm the person that's ignorant and I don't understand that they're trying to show you something different. And it's by seeing the differences in the objects, seeing the differences of how they stand or their postures or how long their arms are, you know. Yes. Why why is this person's arms longer than this person's arms? You know, what's the proportion of the body? Um, these are like the questions. So it took a while for me to to come to terms with um, these are not mistakes. And it was very humbling because like if I was looking at a symbol and trying to decode it, I would see things in there that I would be like, this can't be right. So I just put it off to the side saying, well, I'll just focus on this part of it because that makes sense. Whereas that part of the symbol that makes no sense to this. And it's by by coming back to it and saying, wait a second, this is perfect. I'm the person that doesn't know what's going on here. Um, let me meditate on this more to understand it. And then once you figure it out, it's like you're getting these keys. And the beautiful thing about Egyptian artwork, and which it actually extends into other civilizations like Sumeria and Babylon, once you get that key, it's like, all the artwork has the same keys. So it's not like you have to rebuild your idea from one picture to the next. It's like if it's used in this type of artwork, then it's used in this civilization's artwork as well. And then when I put the two and two together, it's like, oh my God, they both are identical. Um, and it's hard for people to understand that because if you have two completely different images you can say, well, how are these two images identical? And it's identical by their gridding system. Um, So 
uh, you're you're familiar with the concept of uh, the cubit or the royal cubit. Have you ever you heard those terms before? I have, yes, but just to bring people that may not into the loop. Okay, so the cubit is a uh, is the ancient Egyptian measuring scale, and it was uh, a cubit was from the base of your elbow to the top of your middle finger. So the length from the bottom of your elbow to the top of your middle finger, that is your cubit length. So that means your cubit length is different than every person around you unless they're identical, right? Because my arm is bigger than your arm. So it's a different system. But it's a ratio. So if you average up most people's arms, uh, back in Egypt, the average was about uh, 20.5 inches, which was the cubit length. And then, um, and the way they would do the cubit lengths, it was they would say it's um, six hands going up from the elbow to the top of the finger. And then there would be a seven uh, hand or four fingers above the tip of your finger, which gave the royal cubit. Basically, your body was your measuring tool, and you could read the environment. You could read the sun. You could read uh, the stars by your hands and your arm. So the ancient way of measuring the sun was by your outstretched arm and hand. So from your from the perspective from your eye to your outstretched arm to your hand on the horizon is one hour of time. That's so you were a part of the environment. This is where this whole measuring concept comes to, to be is that you're part of the whole, you're part of this uh, system of you're, you're part of the sun, you're a solar being, you're a child of the sun. Uh, you have the proportions of the sun encoded in your body, and therefore your body can measure reality. It can measure the time of the day using your body. So this is how the measuring system came about, is measuring from the base of your elbow to the top of your middle finger. Now, why is this important? It's important because um, these ratios of the arm and the hand are encoded within this artwork, within the statues, within the architecture. And you know, if you look at something so large, let's say the pyramid, uh, which is hundreds of pyramid inches or thousands of pyramid inches, you know, it gives you these numbers that are very big that doesn't really harmonize or make sense with what you're trying to figure out. But if you scale it down to, let's say, something that's reasonable, let's say from a scale from one to ten, and then you put the dimensions of the cubit into that little box, suddenly um, you can scale things to different proportions, but you never lose the identity of the image. So this was the big secret with the images, is that you could have a very large image or a very small image, even like uh, jewelry, for example. Something as small as a, a pendant or an amulet necklace, it could be designed with all the information of the cubit and the sun and the angles and all these things within this tiny pendant, but the exact same geometry and code could be expanded um, to the size of a pyramid or to size of a huge statue. So 
what you have to do is you have to find the scale and the ratio of the scale. And once you do this, suddenly everything clicks into place as uh, one thing. So you can start figuring out what each image means based on the scale and the angles of the image. And I know it's it's very complex to talk about it. Um, I may have lost some listeners trying to explain it, but it's a very visual thing. And I'm a very visual guy, and I think this is why I tapped into it, because, you know, you show me numbers on a page, it's like, you know, I'll go cross-eyed. But when you're when you see it visually, and then you see how it's divided, and how everything fits together within a very specific um, set of rules. And then you could take another image, and you could break down that other image that looks nothing like the other image. And if you break it down with those set of rules, suddenly you see that they're using the same knowledge to create their artwork. So it's um, it's a type of evidence of an ancient lost knowledge that's been passed down unbroken. It's like a, a mathematical code that somebody would have to teach others to use and how to grid things with objects um, so that people that do know this code could walk into, let's say, a temple, look at the wall, or measure the wall, see the angles of, you know, where their eyes, where their arms pointing, what are they holding, what artifacts, what what tools are they signaling to, you know, what's the degrees that the, the tool is facing. Um, and then with that knowledge, if they had that knowledge, they get a completely different story or a completely different set of information than what's being taught to the people, <laughs> you know. So it, it reminds me of... Um, um, things like the Bible, where you know uh, the Bible, uh, they say that has seven levels, seven levels of knowledge hidden within the world words of the Bible, so that you can look at the Bible with um, astrological concepts, mythical concepts, um, alchemy concepts, biological concepts. So there's many different levels that you can read the word. And it's the same thing with these ancient images. If you were taught how to read it at a certain level, then the the people, anybody can look at these images and, and have their story with it. But it's the priests that are creating the images have another story altogether. And if you're trained by them, then you will be able to see it too. Um, and I think that's how they've kept this knowledge alive for so long is that and I think this is like the whole concept of secret societies as well. It's like you have to show them that there is something hidden behind these symbols. And once they see it, they can never unsee it. And once you see it, it becomes so obvious that you you say, how come, how come I haven't seen this before and nobody knows these things? So it, it's right in your face. But you need somebody to guide you through those steps to understand what they mean and where they came from originally. I find this to be the core of experience in consciousness. This to me is when I look at the mystery of why we're here and why we look back to ancient riddles, puzzles, civilizations, and the 
original form of what we call arts, because I believe that somehow there was a divergence that happened within within the arts. And conceptually, that was probably engineered. And so when we're thinking about the idea of Mandelbrot sequences or fractals, well, when you were talking, this is what's running through my head. And the more I have dug into the nature of what we're here for or doing, the more I see that, the more I see what is so obvious just where I am at on my level, wherever, whatever that is, that looks so obvious. And yet I look around and I'm constantly standing almost by myself. And I'm pointing stuff out and trying to maneuver through this, what looks like an afterlife to me, in the best way I can. And there's the frustration. So when we're talking about these things that are hidden in plain sight, and I agree, this is the whole reason for the mystery schools, for uh that whole set of organizations that have come down in different ways, some with uh, good intent, some with ill intent. You know, it's it's a mixed bag. I find it interesting in this day and age, right here, Jason Quit, where we're speaking, that so much now looks very obvious to me and is completely in our faces and then here you come with something we're looking at these images and here you come with another thing that's obvious to you after crossing some psychic threshold to be presented with this information to bring forward so what you were saying earlier just describing cubits and the royal cubit and all this that it may have lost some people the beauty is you've just planted a seed. <laughs> so then the responsibility is out of your hands and it's in the lap of other people to question further, look deeper, find the pathway and start questioning. So when we're looking at this book and the way it came about, because we're in the first hour, so I don't want to get, I'm going to get crazy in that second hour, but, uh, when we're looking at this that came forward to you, let's look at a little bit of the stuff going on around you at the time this revelation came through. Of course. Of course. And, you know, I was I, I was laughing at myself the other day because, you know, as an author, you're trying to reach more people. You know, you're trying to build that audience <laughs> And I find that the further I go with, um, go down the rabbit hole, and for the further I find these this out, this information out, it's like I cut away more and more people. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> because because the concepts become so esoteric that it's like, who are you? Who's your audience? Who are you really trying to tell this to? And the truth of the matter is, is that it's a process of discovery through oneself. So this was my process of discovering and, and going through it. And you get to, to come on that journey with me. And I try to, to yes. um, put it out there in a very, very simplistic way that any reader at any level 
of under, any level of understanding can look at this and get it right away. What I was going through at the time was this whole idea of correspondence, which is a you know a very uh, ancient um, hermetic idea, which I would I would say goes further back than hermeticism. This whole thing that as above, so below, and everything is um, like you said, a fractal of one thing or another. So we're a part of the whole, and the whole has influence on us, and we, as a piece of the whole, have influence on the whole. And it's this correspondence, this reflection, that it's um, one of the most powerful ancient spiritual concepts of mysticism that's been encoded in all this work. You know, the last show I went through my process of how I write this stuff, and it, it really does come down to, you know, putting the question in your mind and then basically meditating for months until you get the answer because you're not yes. looking for answers on the internet. You know, you're not reading through other people's books and saying, aha, I got it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like these are these are kind of like divine inspirations that it's like I wake up in the middle of the night and go, that's it. Yes, yes. <laughs> and then I run to my computer <laughs> and, and write it down. That's what I'm talking about when it comes to divine inspiration. Um, but I was looking at this whole correspondence between the afterlife and the stars. And it's so rich in ancient Egypt, where um, especially the pyramid texts, where it talks about uh, the journey. And, and by the way, the pyramid text, you know, evolves into the Book of the Dead. So people would be more uh, conscious of the Book of the Dead or the, the path of the two ways. But the pyramid text talks about going through the afterlife going on the solar barge, you know, entering the underworld or night, and then passing through um, the different constellations of the night sky to be reborn uh, or to join the gods in the, um, the, um, the northern hemisphere of uh, the night sky, which uh, is where the North Star is. So there was this path that the soul would travel and this is what pharaohs and uh, people of that time believed that when they would die, there was a very specific path. There was a very specific um, journey that needed to be taken in the afterlife to be born again or to become a god or, you know, be sent back down to the earth to relive another life, to learn more. And it was through these steps that I was really trying to um, unravel this journey for um, the reader who's ever going to read this book, I started to see that this, the exact same journey that the soul takes in the afterlife is the exact same journey that the sun takes through the sky over the year. So it was the exact same thing. So there is this kind of correspondence that your soul is the sun and your your soul is a star that gets to be part of the the heavens, the sea of nut. And when you die, you become a star again because before you were born into this in this world, you were a star. And that star light, that astral light came down and embodied the physical realm. And then when you leave, you take that astral light and go back to the stars. 
So it's this beautiful correspondence, beautiful correspondence. So when I started to pull on that string, we started to find that um, even the judgment of Osiris had these astrological uh, correspondences to it, you know, being like um, there, there's one image from the Book of the Dead where Isis is guiding the uh, the singer. It was a, a lady through the uh, the afterlife through the Osiris's judgment, and she's standing there. She's holding in her hand uh, a grain of wheat, and if you know astrology, the the virgin that holds the grain of wheat is Virgo. You know, so it's Virgo is leading the deceased woman through the judgment of Osiris, and she's taking her to the scales, which is Libra, to be judged. And, you know, sitting at um, the base of the uh, scales is uh, Anubis, which is the star Sirius, uh, Canis Major. And then there's an offering table with a, a, a bull's leg on it, horizontally, and that is the... Um, that is the symbol for the for boots, the constellation boots. And then you have Osiris sitting at the throne, and Osiris is Orion. So it's like when you put those strings together, you realize that this is the journey of the the sun takes through the year of you know dying during the fall equinox and then entering the winter months. So you're entering from from Virgo to Libra, and then you're entering into Sirius and to Orion, which is the winter months. So there's this whole astrological side of the myth that's hidden within the actual artwork and myth of dying. So if you're trying to tell this to somebody and say, oh, you know, it's just astrological, the way that they believed was that everything was related and everything was a correspondence, a mirror from one level to the next, the microcosm and the macrocosm. So that when you your death is the exact same death the sun takes as descends uh, below the horizon in its lowest level of the year, it dies and it's reborn on uh, the winter solstice. And when it comes to uh, the spring equinox, that's when you're um, rejuvenated. You're 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 coming back to life. You've defeated the underworld. Um, the sun is coming back to bring life to the earth. So these ancient religious concepts are based on the cycles of time of the seasons and the sun. And metaphysically, it's also how we live our lives. Our lives are an exact reflection of that journey of the sun through the year. And our afterlife is the exact same journey as the sun as it descends through through the western horizon into the night sky. You know, and this is why when you look at the, the Book of the Dead or the Book of Gates, for example, it talks about the hours of the night. So as you're going through the underworld, each gate is an hour of the night. And each demon or each god that you have to pass through at each gate is really diff different constellations that pass every hour of the night sky. 
So everything is a reflection of this beautiful understanding that everything is connected and everything is a mirror and reflection of the cosmic order and we're a part of it. And this kind of evolved, uh, in my opinion, to uh, the religions that we have today, but they've taken the kind of natural world completely out of it and have placed, um, I would say, godheads or god figures in place of the natural phenomenon, and it's disconnected our understanding of what the original concepts truly meant. So just to add a little layer of woo here, when we're thinking about this stuff, and this to me in my head where I am is all relevant to what we're, I mean, it's relevant to this conversation and I'm sure it's relevant on some level, but we have visibly encountered a change in our sun in our lifetimes, you and I lifetimes and people in our age ranges. And so when we're thinking about this clockwork, this major clockwork, and we're talking about the scalability of, say, the cubits, and it it reminds me of certain art classes I had with perspective and stuff, how, you know, how engineering's born, right? This is kind of the birth of engineering. And the change, and I don't need to get into the woo, what the change is or why the change is. The change happened and there's something different. It's a different color and all this. My question here is, is it significant to this information you've uncovered? Is there a thread of continuity? Um, I would say yes. And what I've learned through this is that, um, you know, we're all, we all are aware of the age of Aquarius, right? We're going into the age of Aquarius and we think it's the age of enlightenment and we're coming from the age of Pisces and before that, the age of Aries, before that, the age of Taurus. Now at each age, a new religion takes hold, a new society, a new world takes hold. Um, so civilizations, um, it, it's about 2,160 years per age. And during those 2,160 years, you have the rise of a, an amazing civilization in the fall of a civilization or different epochs of a civilization. Because, you know, for example, Egypt, um, they went through uh, a couple of those uh, epochs of time. But the thing is, is that um, every time an age ends, what they do is they kind of destroy or get rid of the past myths, the past ideas, and they rearrange them or um, modify them to a new motif to create or to give that age its unique character. So... Going into the age of Aquarius, which is um, not too far off, I think we're about 100 years away from the actual date of moving into the age of Aquarius. And in that time frame, I think there's going to be a dismantling of religious dogma. There's going to be a dismantling of uh, different perspectives on our past, different perspectives of who we are. And it's going to be like a shedding 
of old skin were saying this stuff is not useful anymore. And to come into this new age, we have to let all of this go and we have to rearrange or modify our beliefs to fit this new age of Aquarius. Um, and that that is very um, harsh because we don't know what's going to happen. Are they going to like, you know, pull the cord and all society around the earth is going to um, go through a very difficult time and we're going to have to rebuild into this new civilization with a new understanding of the time and the sun that we're entering into. And I think this is that whole concept of, you know, the secret society or the concept of the ancient elders that are hidden from from the main society that yes. have been here forever, yes. who basically write our lives or write what epochs of time we're going to achieve. And um, what, what was that? Oh, man. Uh, Batman. What was it? Batman Forever or Batman Returns? I don't know which one it was. But remember that the League of Shadows? I yes. don't know if you know that concept. Oh, yes. <laughs> but basically, it's like, okay, your society has reached its pinnacle. It's now now the ninjas come in. The old secret society comes in and brings it down to start a new one. You know, and this is just the way it is. This is the way it's always been. So that society or civilization can move forward and progress to where it needs to go. And these groups are in the background pulling those strings unbeknownst to the population. Every age goes through this. And this is why, you know, if you go to like the um, the Old Testament, the Jewish religion, this is entering the age of Aries, right? So that's the age of Aries. And what do they say in the Bible in the Old Testament is Egypt was evil. Don't worship the, the bull, you know, because they came out of Egypt it was bull worship at the time because it was the age of Taurus. Yes. And once they killed the age of Taurus, you know, they, they, they got rid of the golden bull, the idol. They moved to the ram, which is the ram's horn, the chauffeur. And they got rid of that old past. They shed that skin and said, no more Egypt. E Egypt was evil. Don't look back there. Now we're in the age of Aries, the age of the ram, you know. And then when Christianity came... Uh, when they moved into the uh, age of Pisces, you know, Jesus fish, uh, the ancient symbol of um, Christianity was actually a fish, which because it was moving into the age of Pisces. Yeah. And that was the symbol from the Old Testament to the New Testament, moving into the age of, of Pisces. So at each age, the religions are basically sorted out. <laughs> And a new one is introduced as this is the one that um, is important. So in our technological age where um, many people still hold traditional values uh, very strongly, it's, uh, it's difficult to imagine uh, the next step, which is probably going to take the next 50 to 100 years to accomplish. We're going to get into this idea of the League of Shadows later, and I... I'm a big fan of the Batman universe because of so much is so much is there. This book, this book that came forth from magical space, the door opener was there. You walk through, you find this evidence that brings 
something ancient from the old world to the new world to the Americas. What's the significance of this? It's a very difficult question because uh, when I first started to introduce this concept back to people, um, the the first kind of responses were, so? Like, what what is that supposed to mean for us today? <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> you know, it's like, like what, is, what is this? How does this change my life or my outlook on anything? And the way that I, I look at it is that there is there's information or knowledge out there that has to do with the cycles of time. And it's the cycles of time that shape who we are through our creation or through the creation process. It's the times we live in that basically define who we are as human beings. And if we um, go back in time, we go back, um, you know, many years ago, you would only go back to um, 6,000 years ago. You'd go back to like the beginning of the pyramids. And you would say, okay, this is like the beginning of civilization. You have the pyramids, you have ancient summer. The earth is 6,000 years old, <laughs> or, you know, civilization is 6,000 years old, right? Mm-hmm. And then in the past 10 years, or no, sorry, in the past 20 years, um, new, new discoveries are made. And let's say the site Gobekli Tepe. Now, they were not supposed to be building stone monuments, megalithic stone monuments, before the pyramids, you know, they were just supposed to be Neolithic hunters and gatherers with stone tools, right? <laughs> you know, this was, you know, you're just out there hunting and gathering. But Gobekli Tepe takes you right back to the end of the last ice age, where they had knowledge of the stars. They had knowledge of architecture. They had knowledge of building using megalithic stones and moving those megalithic stones in place. There was artistry they carved on the walls. They had um, different figures, different symbols, different animals. Um, so they were very knowledgeable uh, and, and had something to them, uh, some knowledge to them that they've passed on to other civilizations in the future. The question is, does it go back further? And when it comes to mainstream archaeology or mainstream thought, um, the moment you start hitting tw- uh, 12,000 years ago at the end of the last ice age, it's like nothing should exist of technology. It should be people living in caves. <laughs> so you get the petroglyphs um, of different animals, let's say in France, going back uh, 17 to 30,000 years ago. And they think that, okay, that's it. It's like suddenly you went from caves yeah, from you know surviving the last ice age to then having um, six thousand years of growth and knowledge of hunter gatherers to then start building structures around the planet and then building pyramids and megalithic sites. Um, that may not be true. So the knowledge that continually comes to the surface 
is that our history of who we are may extend much further back beyond the last ice age, which is unheard of, which, you know, you'll be called a a pseudoscientist quack even mentioning that type of information. But we can see that a knowledge exists and it's fully formed 12,000 years ago at Gobekli Tepe. And then we see that knowledge extending its fingers around the world and the same images, the same symbols, the same knowledge, same stories that are found 12,000 years ago in Gobekli Tepe are found on petroglyphs in North America. Yes. So it's like, and those petroglyphs are only, what they say is only maybe 2,000 years old. So there's 10,000 years of space <laughs> bet- between what they found in Gobekli Tepe and the identical thing in America. You know, it's how, how is that possible? So why did this come to me or why am I searching this? Why do I find this important? Is that we are our ancestors. We're literally an unbroken chain of life. The body that I exist in today, the body that you exist in today, connects to the first mother. You know, we're an unbroken chain of life. We are our ancestors. And as a society, I think that's kind of whitewashed out of us where we don't understand, you know, I could speak those words, but what does it actually mean to you? You know, does it hit you in your gut? Do you understand what I'm really saying to you? Is that all your information, your DNA, your genes, your consciousness has a link to our most ancient ancestors. And if we are able to tap into that link, our ancestors speak through us. But it's a language we have to accustom ourselves to again. And this is, again, part of the spiritual journey and path of of understanding that there is an unbroken chain of consciousness. And it's, it's, type, it's a type of rejoining to really describe that feeling. It's not, um, it's a very powerful spiritual experience that changes your mind, changes your energy. It changes how you see yourself in the world. And nobody can take that away from you after you've discovered that for yourself. Yes, I refer to this as our real inheritance. This is the meaning of inheritance for me. And the little things that people think, the little concept of inheritance where mom dies and you inherit whatever mom had, well, this is true, but it's not her physical things. It's her blood memory that chains us all the way back down into the roots of whatever this is, to the core, the kernel. And the deeper in we go in this discovery, which is really truly a renewal or a reamalgamation of what was always there for us. And like we talked about with that picture, coming to it 
at different stages along the journey and unlocking what was there all along, what was pre-seeded, and I mean pre and then seed, S-E-E-D, for us to find when we are ready along the journey gives us more fuel to keep going. And to the onlooker that does not do this work, that does not do this journey, we become very different from them. We can look very different at that time. And historically, just in modern history, we can see how this has resulted in the idea of a heretic and and persecutions and and all of this to support the narratives of what reality is. When, as I see it now, Jason, and as I've always seen it, this is the bigger work. And every time someone stumbles upon something that may bring a spark of light, a synaptic response, a blink of a star in the sky, and I can see it and recognize it, it transfers. It transfers like crystals transfer information to each other. And it may be small at first, and we may be outsiders at first, but it is unstoppable through the dendritic entanglement of this experience we're having. So to get to a place where you were divinely inspired. And I'm saying that, and I mean that in the wholeness of it, the the absolute wholeness of it, to bring forth a new connection, a new synaptic response you've had to stimuli through your journey and process. And that I, on this end, I'm just using us as examples because we're here, can hear you over there. I can hear you. And in the hearing, I can see then what you're presenting. And then this whole thing starts to take us collectively deeper into it. And so I'm going to end the first hour on this. And we're going to get back into into the depth of this book. But what sacrifices came to you? Because there's always a trade. There's always a trade when we get to the new levels. And it, <laughs> oh, you're making me laugh, which is good, which is good. Um, I would say you have to like lose yourself. Uh, is it, And um, as as an author, like, or as a spiritual author, my my journey in writing the book is you let it speak through you, and and to to get to those levels of understanding, it's almost like uh, you may reach a cracking point. You may drive yourself insane going down these rabbit holes. Um, and you have to like let go of your. I, I really had to let go of how I saw things. Like when you read this book, and I know you will, and I know you've read the Egyptian Posters book, you will see a change in just the perspective. 
because um, I had to change my entire perspective of what symbols actually meant. You know, you're you're taught because things are repeated. You know, you could just go on Wikipedia and type in what is the unk, you know, <laughs> and just get the, that's the answer. Okay, this is what everybody knows. That's what it means. Key of life. You know, it's easy. But no, it's it's so much more complex than that. And it's it's a way, again, it's it's a type of shedding your skin where you have to kind of let go of what you think is the answer and let the symbol itself tell you what it is, which is a difficult process. And like I said before, I could be studying this content and I have been studying this content for over 20 years. I didn't see this until it showed itself to me. And I was not in the right mindset until I was 40 years old to see it. You know, so these books or this information will come through you only when you're ready to see it. If you put your blockers up and say, this is what it's supposed to mean, let's fit our perspective and create a narrative around what we think it is. Um, you're just putting this information in a box. And what I was doing was, was trying to get to the ancestors and say, speak to me. You tell me in your own voice what this is. Yes. I don't want to learn anything from anybody else but you. Show me what these symbols actually mean. And you can meditate for months just on that single question or that single thought and still get nothing. And then one day it's like the sieve opens and you can't stop. It's like I had to sit in front of the computer for days just typing because it was there. And I had to capture it while it was there. So that's that's what I gave up and what I sacrificed is is my beliefs. Incredible. And I'm already thanking you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm glad to be here talking with you about this journey. Jason, how do people find you in the world? How do people get a hold of a hand autograph book, if that's possible, etc.? Um, well, you can get my books right now off of Amazon very easily, just typing in my name, Jason Quit. And the new book is Astral Genesis or Egyptian Postures of Power. You can also find these books autographed from my website, thecrystalsun.com. Thank you kindly. And this is a great pleasure to be with you here again. We're going to get deeper into this. So for now, thank you everyone that has heard these words that will find the book. The book, the words... They actually find you. Abiento. There he goes. Jason quit. This is a remarkable new insight from Jason. I would like to thank the producers of this show. Wise Night Owl, Cassie, Christy Tesmer, Claire Cathcart.
Eggtooth, Elizabeth Radican, Eric Peterson, H, Jake Vanek, Jason Lamson, Jessica Lynn, J.H. Armstrong, Kate Kukulkan, Laura Dunn, Luis B, Marcy Shapiro, Marin, Mark Betcher, Melanie Poe, Mia Bell, Michael Watcher, Michael Watts, Mike, Myra, Neil McNaughton, Noelle Jeanette, Pamela Holdall, Santa Rebecca, Sarah Edda Eckrich, Stephen Mercer, JJ of Ren de Blanc Brand, and Babs the Bone Knitter, as well as all the other patrons here at Patreon in the Speakeasy. Thank you. You truly make this work worth it. It is a beautiful thing to know that others are in the world, that others hear the words and the call. We are on a journey. And sometimes it's very lonely or hard, sad. Sometimes it's joyful and happy. Whatever it is, we are in motion. And if we can be in motion without doing, as Ina Retort says in her latest book, perhaps, perhaps something magical happens. Remember, the dreamer loves the dream. The dreamer feeds the dream. The dreamer awakens within the dream. Truly, the key to this whole riddle is to stay lucid. So, thank you for spending time here with me in the Cosmic Salon. <laughs>